Mutiny on the Bivalvia Interview with a Seafarer We never know self-realization. We are two abysses, a world staring at the sky. I'm very pleased that you have agreed to this interview. You've already been on quite an interview tour. Well, indeed. You're the only one who's faced the press after the shipwreck of the Bivalvia. None of the other crew members wanted to comment on what happened on board. They really went into hiding. But let's start from the beginning. How had you heard about the Bivalvia? I was in a minor life crisis at the time. Although I had had moderate success as a cultural worker, it never felt like it. I had made a place for myself in the art scene, which provided me with rent and basic things, but I wasn't really making any big leaps. I had a lot of friends, but there was a point when I found myself asking myself too often, For whom and for what am I doing all this? I lost perspective. But you already had quite a promising career at that time, many international exhibitions. You were already interviewed by us at that time because of your participation in the Kabi Biennial, where you showed your video work, All the Beaches in the World. The reviews were effusively good. You showed a fine sensibility for the ecological problems of globalization. I was bored with my own films and I also knew that my days at the Baniels were numbered. There was little money to be made in those days and little opportunity to accumulate wealth through savings. I worked 14 hours a day. It didn't feel good and at some point everything just became an effort. This was certainly also due to the fact that I had the feeling that my male colleagues only had to put in half as much as effort and got their success faster. This was nothing new to me, only That was actually the great time of feminist movement, which was supposed to have created a new awareness in equality and structural discrimination. A movement in which you were also very active. I wouldn't call it that. I sent a few petitions, made a few posts on social media and went to a few demonstrations, but I wasn't really motivated to join any activist groups. Then again, I was too doggedly focused on my art career. I wanted to be as successful as my male colleagues and thought I could achieve that by working hard. Which was exactly the wrong idea, because doggedness should express itself as ambition, but isn't something very appealing or fruitful when others perceive it. What I, and many of my colleagues who were either defined as or identified as female, felt was a lack of implicit self-assuredness of our place. And by place, I mean both physical and spatial presence, alongside one's own discursive position. In our case, there was a little too much doubt and too much time spent doubting. I admired and loathed the indisputability of male assertions. How did it manifest itself? One feature was the seemingly endless monologues I had to listen to regularly. At times I even literally checked my watch to see that I really was mistaken when a colleague at a dinner had been speaking about himself for an hour without ever asking a question back. You could have interrupted him. Well, that's true. I should have done that much more often. But of course it was also 
comfortable position for me. I would say, oh yeah? Or what do you mean exactly? Every now and then, and then he would just keep going. My fear of messing something up by being openly critical was far too great, coupled with just the lack of self-assuredness whether the things I would have to say would be just as interesting and, above all, important. It's a simple female position. If you ask your male colleague a not-too-stupid question every now and then, and then let him talk and listen to himself for hours, he will claim at the end that it was a very good conversation with a very interesting and fine-minded woman. That's a very harsh judgment you're making. I know, I'm exaggerating a bit here. Of course, there's always exceptions, but that's how I perceived the majority of evenings at the time. And that's where the life crisis came from? Right. The question arose for me, how can I be myself without shutting myself off to others? And how can I open myself to others without losing myself? And then I read this open call, which was formulated very cryptically. What did it say? It just said, to all women, offer adventure, Etsy. And an email address to which you should send your application. You responded to that? I think I would have thought it was a joke. Yes, I wasn't sure either, but I already had a whole folder of finished application writing snippets and an up-to-date CV and thought, why not? If it was a joke, then my email would arrive and someone would have something to laugh about. If not, you would end up at sea. My thoughts didn't go that far back then. I just wanted to do something different and adventure. So it's somehow old-fashioned and good. But... Adventure at sea also smacks of retrograde colonial attitudes. That's true. The great seafaring adventure novels were written at the height of colonial trade and whaling. The term adventure has a bit of taste nowadays. I think what drove me to apply was this to all women before it. It made me wonder because, after all, these two sentences are actually mutually exclusive in terms of social and cultural history. I was interested in who was behind this call, fortunately and unfortunately, I have to say today. How did you find out that your application was successful? I received an email that I had been accepted and would be picked up at Portobello in a month with my suitcases packed. For some reason, I trusted I was doing the right thing, subletted my flat, took what I needed and went to the port. Pretty brave. Yes, maybe naive too. If I had known at the time how long the journey would take, I'm sure I wouldn't have given up on everything so quickly. I feel like fleeing. Like fleeing from what I know. Fleeing from what's mine. Fleeing from what I love. I want to rest far removed from my inveterate feigning. I want to feel sleep come to me as life, not as rest. What was waiting for you in the harbour? A big very beautiful ship that I boarded. And then everything was dark for a while. 
I don't remember my first day on board. Only that I was taken to my cabin by a woman and she told me I was tired and should rest. I must have slept through several days. We called it the land fatigue. All the new arrivals slept for so long at the beginning of the journey. When I woke up, we were already at sea, with no land in sight. I had lost my bearings. Mobile phones and internet no longer worked. Were you afraid? No, not really. It was fascinating. The crew consisted of 18 people who called themselves women in society on land. All had come together from the most diverse parts of the earth, leaving their countries for various reasons. But no one spoke directly about why. Where did the name of the ship come from? What does bivalvia mean? Bivalvia comes from bivalve mollusks. I think it refers to the term shell mollusk, with two valves that expel their excreta by the heart. Bivalvia have locking muscles that can keep the outer shell closed with little energy expenditure. They can also change sex several times. I don't know who came up with the name. Anyway, there were shells painted on the ship. Oh, that's interesting. What exactly was waiting for you on board? Unlike usual ship crews, the idea was to get along without hierarchy. Everyone should and was allowed to do everything. The ship was underway without any destination, so all navigational work on the bridge was quite simple. Since we were drifting without schedule, we didn't need heavy fuel or diesel oil. We let ourselves drift. Electricity came from solar panels. Food and drinking water were always available. How they managed, that remains a mystery to me to this day. The storage was huge and never emptied. I loved navigating, but we took turns. Each had to cook at times, clean the deck, etc. The Bavalvia sailed under a stateless flag which I don't think anyone noticed given the complicated legal system on high seas. We were not missed and were not noticed, almost willfully ignored. If another ship appeared on the radar, it simply sailed past us. We were passing in the night and neither signalled nor recognised each other. Did you feel boredom? No, never. At first everything was new. The women were very nice, we got to know each other. At first it was all about the utopia and coming to the realization that our apparent lack of self-assuredness was not a lack at all, but was something we actually did not want or need to consider. It was about thinking things differently, and you, outside the male-dominated uh, socialization, which turned out to be a difficult task. We met regularly to consult. Recordings of these conversations were kept in a watertight chest. At first, I guess, we thought we could change humanity. There was no money and no career. Two women had already been to the World Conference on Women in Nairobi in 1985 and were very articulate and experienced in the culture of debate. At first, we thought we could have these discussions without agreed-upon speaking time limits. A fallacy, as it turned out. In what way? It started very gently. On the surface, everything remained affable. But at some point, the friendliness just seemed superficial. Clicks were developing. In one particular case, two or three 
crew members started disappearing into a corner with each other more and more frequently, consulting with each other. These were also the ones who began occupying more speaking time and choosing very deliberate seating positions in the conferences. Since none of this was spoken about, it was like a thin fog coming in from the sea. You ignore it and think that it will go away on its own with the wind and by the sun. Instead, it thickened until we all could no longer see our hands in front of our faces. To dominate others is to need others. The commander is dependent. specifically. The three I mentioned started to talk their way out of the daily tasks and did it so skillfully that we didn't even notice it at first. Sometimes one of them was too busy with something else or had an important conversation or something similar. The only thing they were still doing was navigating and managing the chest where the recorded conversations were held. By spending more and more time on the bridge they suddenly knew their way around very well. They were asked for advice by the others and were willingly given the top deck. Cooking, cleaning, engine maintenance, all these things no longer interested them. And we let it happen. Probably we were also avoiding conflicts because, as you know, there are not many places of retreat on a ship. That we could all get along with each other with a class-free impartiality was of course, completely utopian. That was also the attitude of the three. In fact, at the beginning, I, was, I almost had the feeling that they were only behaving in this way so as to provoke, giving the whole endeavour more adventurous flair. And in a way, I agreed that we also had to address conflict. But it went on and on. Suddenly, they also divided us into groups and thought it would be helpful for us to establish a division of labour that corresponded to our talents. The topics for discussions were now also set, an order for speaking was determined, and thus the same problems began as on land. There was differentiation, envy, resentment. Why didn't you declare the trip a failure and break it off at that point? Well... Tragic thing was that we didn't even recognize it as such. 
these three were so unbelievably skillful at always handing out praise just in time to then impose a new rule or their will that we didn't even notice it was in our own decision. It felt like the right thing to do. However, we all became increasingly silent and tired. It came back, the land fatigue. The three of them literally sucked the energy out of us. The more listless we became, the more they blossomed. We also suddenly had destinations, which were completely irrelevant. We were supposed to arrive in this or that sea in a certain number of days, which of course we never managed. They started dividing up the food among us, secretly. Some got different portions than the rest. I only found this out because a colleague accidentally left her plate. At one time, I was told I was good at navigation. At another, I was chased away from the bridge and someone new was found. When did the homeward change? The situation was getting worse and worse. We were a hierarchical female crew with a captain, a first officer and a second officer. The imaginary had been replaced by control. Because there was soon this clear division between the bottom and the top, the women at the bottom in turn showed more solidarity. Well, at least they tried to do so with the remaining strengths they had left after a hard day's work. The point at which it tipped was a decision by the bridge that we thought was wrong. They wanted to ship near the coast because they were supposedly missing other ships and people. We thought that was extremely risky. Different laws apply on the high sea than in the coastal zone. There were only a few ports where we had stopped in between to greet new crew members. These ports were small. No one was interested enough to take notice. But the captain wanted to go to the economic zone. She was becoming delirious. Maybe we also let the fraud diversion happen so that the journey had an end. So you sailed into the so-called 200 nautical mile zone of a country. Yes, exactly. Straight with our eyes wide open into disaster. Immediately we received hundreds of radio signals, giving us a rush of self-justification. Even the bridge had underestimated what would happen. Suddenly some of us felt a kind of, I don't like the word, but kind of homesickness. They wanted to go back ashore. That was a point where the mutiny started. It was chaos. The three refused to give up the bridge and we didn't want to use physical force. Especially as we sensed that they too realized they had made a mistake. The captain's delirium had turned to fever and was rising. She just lay there, dazed, caught up in nightmares. The two others treated her with wet cloths, but it didn't help. She knew she had betrayed us. And yet, we felt sorry for her. Our ship's doctor gave her antipyretics, but she kept moaning, My Bavalvia, my crew, all is lost, do something. Even in the greatest delirium, she was still giving orders. When her condition didn't improve, we decided to flood the lower decks. Scenes like in a James Cameron movie, but we knew we were relatively likely to be rescued and the water was warm. There were ships in sight. You caused shipwreck yourself, in two respects. Yes, exactly. Fortunately, they were all rescued. 
Do you still have contact with all the crew members? What happened to the captain and the officers? I'm still in contact with many of them, yes. Some of them are even working on cargo ships again. Usually as the only woman aboard. The three from the bridge continue to get on well. The female captain recovered quickly as soon as she was ashore. I don't want to say where, but it was no problem for her to quickly get her feet back once she was on land. And you? At the moment, I'm still financing myself with these interviews, and I have a contract to write a book about the adventure at sea. It's unbelievable. I haven't even finished the book, and my publishing house is already in negotiation for a series. Oh, I guess I'm not supposed to tell this in an interview. Yeah, that was fast. Yes, was it? And actually, it could be the most boring series in the world, because the goal was to let nothing and everything happen. The unpredictable. What do you think? What conclusion can we women who stayed on land draw from your experiences? Um, it's difficult because at the end of the day, I really just want to tell what happened, but not judge and not condemn. So you don't hold grudges against the others? No, not at all. We were just as much to blame and it just turned out the way it had to. In the end, flooding was the best decision, because the whole trip was a terribly old-fashioned and romantic idea, far removed from real social transformation. The only thing I feel sorry for is Bivalvia. She was a really beautiful ship, but also quite aged. But it wasn't the first ship with the idea, and certainly won't be the last. What still bothers me a little is the question of why the three of them deliberately steered Bivalvia into its doom. They were quite aware they'd made the wrong decision. At least, that was my impression. Maybe, in the end, it was also about the lack of attention from the male colleagues on the freighters, along the lines of, look, how we can steer the Bavalvia. I guess the fact that we could wasn't enough. It was an odyssey. We had lost ourselves instead of creating a new relation out of our initial refusal. That's what we had failed at. Do you think you have a different attitude in conversations now? And what about the self-assuredness you were talking about earlier? At least I pay more attention to it and I also say something more quickly if I feel tension arise. For instance, I explicitly pointed out to the person that they're monologuing. And since I've been on the ship, however, my tendency to digress under such conditions basically increased. I've probably become more patient because I often don't even keep track of time. As far as self-assuredness is concerned, I no longer try to imitate it through my behavior. Unfortunately, this program is coming to an end, but I still have one question. Who among the women actually initiated the open call and bought the ship? Ah, I have an idea, but I'm not quite sure. But now I've really taken up enough speaking time myself. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. Text Nadia Abt. All quotes from Fernando Pessoa's The Book of Disquiet. Seafarer Mareike Wenzel. Interviewer Nadia Abt. Music Alabaster de Plume. Sound, 
Nadia Abt and Franz Schütte. A radio play commissioned by KW Institute for Contemporary Art, Berlin 2021.